Welcome to Tell Me a Story I Don't Know and a special presentation of Encore Week. We look back at some of the most popular, entertaining, and revealing interviews, including ones with Bob Costas, Mike Greenberg, Mike Wilbon, Sarah Kustak, and Eddie Olchek. Encore Week is proudly presented by Dynamic Manufacturing, awarded the General Motors Supplier of the Year 23 times. Find them at dynamicmanufacturinginc.com. And by Vienna Beef, home of the Chicago hot dog and an institution since 1893. You can find them at viennabeef.com. And now we go back to the debut of this podcast on January 26, 2021. And I couldn't think of anybody better to get us going than the wonderful Mike Wilbon. We first met nearly 40 years ago, and what a career he's fashioned. I grew up wanting to work for the Tribune or Sun-Times. I delivered them. I delivered both newspapers. I had a paper route at 11, 11 years old. So I had a paper route from 19, the summer of 1970 until I went to Northwestern, until I went to college. Michael Wilbon is a diehard Chicagoan, but he made his mark as a reporter and columnist for the Washington Post and then at ESPN, where he teamed up with Tony Kornheiser over the last 20 years for the wildly popular Pardon the Interruption. Wilbon is a Southsider who parlayed hard work, ingenuity, integrity, and a gift for gab into a resoundingly successful career. So, Michael Wilbon, tell me a story I don't know. Oh, goodness, George, we've known each other so long. I don't know how many of these you can't know because we've talked a number of times, obviously. I'm going to tell you one, but it's going to be, it's, 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 you got a self-indulgent story. It's just too much me, me, me. But in 1997, I'm going to say, just about 1997, when the great Bob Verde, columnist for the Chicago Tribune and probably my favorite columnist of sports columnist of my lifetime, um, Bob had decided he was going to semi-retire, do other things, but not write the daily column anymore. And I ran into him somewhere in a press box in America, and he said, um, it's time for you to come home. And I, I said, I, I come to Chicago all the time. What are you talking about? And he said, no, it's time for you to come home. I'm going to stop doing this every day, and you're, you're the person who should succeed me. You're the person who should be doing this. And I, it, it immediately freaked me out because, again, Bob Verde, to me, Bob Verde is the great – columnist, Chicago sports columnist of my lifetime. And that's saying something, because there were so many great columnists when I was growing up, you know, from Mike Royko and Bob Green, and you could be outside of sports, or you could be inside of sports with so many wonderful columnists. And the Tribune then started talking to me about coming home in the late 1990s. Um, I was coming home a lot anyway, because let's face it, if you were a sports writer then and covering the NBA at all, you were there for a lot of Michael Jordan Chicago Bulls oh, yeah. activities over the years, right? I've been there a lot. And I always wanted to come home. I, I mean, I wanted to, I grew up wanting to work for the Tribune or Sun-Times. I delivered them. I delivered both newspapers. <laughs> a maximum of 92 houses on Yale, oh, and, man, that's Yale a- and Wentworth in the, <laughs> from, from when I was 11. I had a paper route at 11, 11 years old. So I had a paper route from 19, the summer of 1970 until I went to Northwestern, until I went to college. And um, 365 days a year, up at 5 o'clock in the morning. I tell my son that now. He doesn't believe me. But I wanted to work for the Tribune or Sun-Times. That was my goal in life. And the Tribune was going to make it possible. And I came home. I visited. There was a recruiting thing going on. One of the phone calls I get off it was from Jay Mariotti. Jay's at the other paper. Jay's at the Sun-Times. But Jay could foresee something I couldn't. And he was right. He could foresee sports writers on TV. 
he always thought that the next Siskel and Ebert weren't going to be at the movies. They were going to be at the arena, at the stadium, in a press box. And Mariotti always thought that. He thought that the two of us at competing papers like Siskel and Ebert would be on WGN. That's what he always thought. And he had it right. I mean, it didn't appear on WGN because I didn't come. Um, I just decided I had the best job I could possibly have at the time at the Washington Post. And I didn't leave to come home. And it was the hardest decision of my life. You called him the great Bob Verde, which is, by the way, how I call him. I always call him the great Bob Verde, right. who, by the way, is one of the greatest storytellers and one of the funniest human beings on this earth. And the nicest man ever. Absolutely. And I remember yeah. when I went on, I was with the score then. So I go on with Northern Jiggets. I'm, I'm talking as if I'm saying that somebody's passed away. I said, I've got this sad news about Bob Verde. He's leaving the Tribune. And those two guys said, man, you made it sound like he died. And I said, for me, it is. He's well, part of me. Tribune. Part of me died. I like reading <laughs> Bob Verde. I mean, again, you know, there's been a lot of terrific columns. Chicago is a city that um, John Shulian, you know, was writing a sports column. You know, I, I wanted to join that roster of people. You know, at the, so Skip Bayless wound up being the person that took that column after Bob. Skip Bayless wound up writing that column. And um, he and Mariotti were the columnists, sort of a record in town. Um, and, it, and it came out, I mean, it, it, there continued to be great columnists. David Hall. I mean, there continued to be people that I certainly went out of my way to read. Man, I, I really, to this day, sometimes I walk down Michigan Avenue, particularly if I walk past the Tribune Tower, and I just wonder what would have happened. What would my life have been like if I had come home? Well, you didn't come home and instead partnered with Tony Kornheiser for what I believe is and has been the best sports show on TV since its inception 19 plus years ago, pardon the interruption. It's always fresh. It's always lively. It's always entertaining. So, Wilbon, tell me a story I don't know. How this show developed, whose brainchild was it, why did they pick the two of you, and why has it endured? Pardon the interruption, but I'm Mike Wilbon, and welcome to opening day in this bizarre television experiment. And I'm Tony Kornheiser, and if we can have a TV show, you can have a TV show. Well, thank you, first of all, George. Um, that's high praise coming from you, because um, you've known me long before this incarnation, of course. Um, Mark Shapiro, who was doing um, Sports Century in 1990, about the same time, by the way, that I'm thinking about coming home, I'm already on this panel. And the panel had, I don't know how many people were on the panel, but they were entrusted to select the 100 greatest athletes of the 20th century. And we're doing this in 1997, 8-ish, because the list is going to be announced at the end of 1999. And I was one of them. Tony Kornheiser was, Tony Kornheiser was one of them as well. Um, and we would sit in our offices, which were about, the doors were about seven feet apart. And we would scream and holler at each other about this list, among other things. We did this every day. And Mark Shapiro, a young ESPN executive at the time, um, would, and, and he was the executive producer of, you know, Sports Century. It was his baby, his project. And it was a very important project because you got all those biographies. I think a half an hour for some people, but as you got 
toward the top of the pyramid. I think it was an hour for each person. And Mark would come to Washington and sit and listen to Tony and me screaming at each other across the hallway. And he said, one day I'm going to put this, I want to become somebody at ESPN. And if I do, I'm putting you two on television doing this. <laughs> and I remember Tony just said to him, that's nice. Can you give me another cup of coffee, please? Because he, I mean, Mark was young. He was, I mean, he was in his, I mean, so 1998, I was 39. Mark was barely 30. And he said, if I ever become anybody, I'm putting this on television. Fast forward to 2001, summer of, and I get a call in LA. I'm covering the Lakers and whoever the Lakers are playing in the finals in 2001. And it's Mark Shapiro. And he says, hey, I, I got to have dinner with you tomorrow night. And I said, Mark, I'm in LA. And he goes, I know where you are. I'm reading the newspaper. I know exactly where you are. We got to have dinner tomorrow night. I'm like, why? And he said, I, I, we'll have dinner, I'll tell you. So he flies out to L.A. We have dinner at the Ivy, uh, you know, in Beverly Hills. And he says, um, I told you, I promised you guys, if I ever became someone of stature at the network, I was going to put you on television. Well, tomorrow I'm being named whatever the title is. Call it president of programming. That wasn't the name of the title. But whatever the, whatever the title was, it was essentially that. And he said, my first thing is I want to put you and Tony on a, on a show. And I said, that's your first act in this new position? Your second act is you're going to get your ass fired. <laughs> that's what ought to happen. And he said, no, I'm going to do this. And if you two guys say, no, I'm going to, I'm going to put somebody else on. But if this show is going to happen, it's going to be commenting on the news. And Tony and I said to Mark, you know, we don't want to be in something like Crossfire, which was on CNN, where two people pick a position or they're assigned a position and they just fight it out. We don't want that. Yeah. We wanted it to be more like Hello Chicago Connection, Siskel and Ebert, where people sat and talked and reviewed and opined and commented and criticized. Yes, criticized. Um, there were no hot takes yet because that stupid phrase hadn't been invented, thank God. <laughs> but I called Tony after this meeting. The meeting went for four hours from eight till midnight Pacific time. So by the time I gathered myself and sat in the car and tried to understand what I had just been a part of in a conversation, it was 1 a.m. local time in L.A. It was 4 a.m. in the east, and I knew Tony would get up to walk his dog at 4 a.m. So I called him, and I said, you need to listen. You need to not say a word for 10 minutes. I'm going to talk. I'm going to tell you why our lives are going to change, and then we can free for all. And that's what happened. I, I talked to him from 4 until 4.15 in the morning, Eastern time. And I just said our lives are going to be different forever. And they, they obviously they are. They have been. Um, so, you know, we can say we didn't see it coming, but maybe we saw it a little. You know, we thought it could work. We, we, George, we knew we could do what was being asked of us. It didn't mean, A, we were going to be good at it, but I, we thought we were going to be good at it. And it didn't mean that people would give a damn. I mean, just because you're good at something doesn't mean people care. You know, um, we know that with basically 100% of the teachers in the world. Not enough people care, even though they're great at what they do, so, so many of them. So just because you're doing something and you're doing it pretty well doesn't mean people give a damn. But people did. And so that's, that's how that started. Why has it lasted? Because everybody, David West once said when he was in college at Xavier, you know, he talked about he liked watching two old people argue. When somebody said, why do you like this show? You're like 18 at the time. And I, we, were, we were like 40. 40 and 50. 
and David West talked about it. He said, everybody watches sports with somebody they argue with like this. And that's the, that's it. That's, it's no mystery. That's the secret. There's, except there's no secret. Like who, 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 who that cares about sports doesn't passionately discuss it, engage in the discussion of it with somebody else. But it's, but it's, it's about chemistry and we all know. Yeah, that but everybody's got that chemistry with somebody. Right. Right. I mean, everybody's got that chemistry. People are, I, my brother says that he was my co-host before Tony and he was, <laughs> we've been doing this at our kitchen table since we were six to eight years old and my father's sitting there mediating or not. So everybody has this and everybody has it with somebody with whom they have some chemistry or it wouldn't work. The conversations wouldn't go on for years and decades. Right. They just wouldn't, but they do. And they go on when you hate the other person, when you love the other person, when the other person, you know, gets married or divorced or has children or doesn't, or has tragedy, you still have people that you engage in this deep discussion with. And it's not like politics where it becomes awkward or wow, we shouldn't talk about this because it's not polite. There's nothing polite about sports conversation and engagement, but it's okay. Everyone has a permission slip signed to talk about this. Given how good the Heat looked, wouldn't you get Embiid back into the Philly lineup for game three? You think after you trashed my boy, my friend, Dwayne yeah. Wade from the yeah. south side of Chicago, That's right. Hall of Famer, That's third right. best three guard, two guard in the history of the league, okay. you think after you trashed him, yeah. moment after moment after moment, ghost of Dwayne Wade, you know, yeah, it's amazing how he could put his crutches down. Yeah. You know, shoot the ball and pick his crutches up to limp Can back I tell you like something? Walter Brennan down the court. Because he that is a great reference Philly's for people butt. over eighty. Walter yeah, that works Brennan. For you. Um, so better people than you have trashed me. Vienna beef, two words synonymous with hot dogs. They're the home of the Chicago hot dog and an institution since 1893. If you've had a hot dog, chances are it was from Vienna. And did you know there are more locations selling Vienna in Chicago than McDonald's, Burger King, and Wendy's combined? There's nothing like biting into a juicy and delicious pure beef Vienna hot dog. Dragged through the garden, which includes yellow mustard, onions, relish, tomatoes, sport peppers, pickles, and some celery salt. And oh, those Polish sausages dripping with flavor. And look for the spicy smoked sausage available in your local retail stores. It includes a perfect blend of seasonings such as crushed red peppers and brown sugar, creating a bold and zesty taste. Vienna products are available in restaurants, grocery stores, and entertainment venues such as the ballparks, cups, and socks, stadiums, museums, and zoos. Plus, you can purchase them online, coast to coast at ViennaBeef.com and on Amazon. And remember, Vienna is not just hot dogs and sausages. Look for their farm makers' chili, mini bagel dogs, condiments, and classic deli meats. Take it from a guy who was weaned on, then sold Vienna products. It's the mark of excellence since 1893. Check them out at ViennaBeef.com. Want to hear more great guests on Tell Me a Story I Don't Know? It's easy. Just follow me on social media, at George Hoffman. That's O-F-M-A-N. I'm on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And please follow or subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You have covered countless Super Bowls, Final Fours, NBA Finals. There have been great ones. There have been disappointing ones. There have been bizarre ones. But nothing like having one take place in a bubble. Tell me a story I don't know about trying to be part of something like that when you're not there. 
Well, you can't be part of it. You can't. And, and, and there's no real story because it never got there. Um, I was going there. I was on the way. And then there came an opportunity. Uh, I was literally packing to go to the bubble, to go like the last month. So I would have gotten the conference finals and the finals in. And I was, I'm not going to, was I looking forward to it? You know, George is like the Olympics. At, at the end of the Olympics, I'm always glad I did it. <laughs> I, I was never glad in the middle of it. That's not true for the Olympics necessarily. But, you know, I, I, the Olympics wound up being something I was glad I had done. And I, I was thinking of the bubble in the same way. So I was on the way, but there became an opportunity that the network had that we were going to get Magic Johnson to be part of pregame shows. And, you know, I mean, let's, I've worked with Magic for years, and we've become very good friends over those years. And um, there was a sense that, that in, this was going to be under Stephen A. Smith's domain and his sports center brand, and I needed to stay and do that. And I, I t told the powers of be, no, you guys <laughs> need to decide that. <laughs> that. That's way above me. And enough people said, hey, we, we want to we have Irvin on these. And why wouldn't you? Like, like Irvin Johnson's voice, we don't have enough – of the voices of the great NBA players of yesteryear. Yeah, yesteryear. In other words, old. In other words, my age or slightly younger or older. Yes, we have great voices now. Like, I love working with John Barry. You know, John's still on. John's doing radio. Mm -hmm. I love working. I love, I've done occasional work, though less than with Magic, with, with Paul Pierce, you know, and with Chauncey Billups and with Jalen Rose, more with Jalen. I love, I love working with them. I've done less of that because the time has been more compact, because I covered their, the end of their careers, their whole careers. Um, but, but the network, all networks miss, you know, Magic's voice. We don't have enough of Michael Jordan's voice. That's why the damn documentary was so great. Those yeah, are for a million reasons. But hearing his voice, we don't have Larry Bird's voice enough. We have more of Magic's. We have Charles's, thank God. We don't have enough of Magic's. And so when Magic says he's going to do a few shows, the network in which he's done a lot of shows, years worth, ours, I'm all in. So it was the bubble or work with Irvin. And I wish there had been more dates to work with him. You know, we, we did a few shows. I wish there had been more because we, we, we need his voice. We need his common sense. We need his perspective. It is not to say that we don't need the perspective of the people I just mentioned who were younger. Jay Will. Love him. Right? I love all those guys I mentioned. I, I text with them. I, when those guys are on the air, I, I text with Jay Will and with Paul, you know, and, and Jalen. And others, you know, um, I've worked, I love working with Scotty on the jump a lot. And that's been more years. And we need more Scotty's voice because he is both be a little bit younger than the guys I mentioned, a little younger than me, but we need Scotty's voice. And so I like hearing all those guys, T-Mac. You know, I love hearing their voices. Um, but it's not the same as being there. I like hearing their voices when we're all there. Because I think that's what, that's what that mix you know, makes a product. You know, I just mentioned to you that you have covered so many events. And the easiest question to ask someone like you or me that have covered a lot of events over the course of history is, you know, what's what's your favorite event? That's too easy. Tell me a story. I don't know. What was the most electric event you ever covered? It has nothing to do with basketball. It was uh, Kathy Freeman at the 2000 Olympics in Sydney when she was the face of the 2000 Olympics as an Australian woman and as an Aboriginal woman. And she ran the 400 uh, in front of 120,000 people in that stadium in Sydney on a damp, almost rainy night. 
and she had been on the Sydney Morning Herald, maybe the name of the newspaper was, her whole face, a tightly cropped shot of her face the morning of the race. And it said the race of her life or the race of their, our lives, the race of our lives. And she had been running with the two flags, the Aboriginal flag and the Australian flag braided. She had been taking her victory laps with them over her shoulder. And I had gone to press conferences and she was part of the opening ceremonies. And it just seemed to me that this was the most stirring, emotional thing I'd ever seen. And I get emotional talking about it. 20 years later, and she ran the race that night and she was behind after 200 meters, it seemed to me. And I remember thinking, I, at that point, I'd already seen Michael Jordan play in six finals in my hometown. I'd already seen the Bears win a championship. I hadn't seen the Cubs win one or the White Sox in my lifetime. But I'd seen emotional things in my life, right? Things that mattered to me. Mm. I played sports, competed in sports. I'd seen Northwestern go to the Rose Bowl. I'd seen things that were important to me. And when Kathy Freeman was trailing after a couple of hundred meters, it just, the life went out of me. I didn't even know the woman. I did not know her. And I just, I felt depressed for about six seconds. And everybody stood and you could see her making up the ground on the people she was trailing. And when she won the race, I just, I, my heart has never beat faster than that. Never. It was nothing has ever been that important to me. I'm 6,000 miles or whatever, more than that. 12,000 miles away from home, whatever it is. And I then, after that, got to know Kathy Freeman. And I wrote about her uh, and what she was up against and what she did and her uh, intellect and her grace and her beauty and her um, competitive spirit. I wrote about it. And then four years later, four years later in Athens, I'm, I got to meet her. She was working for their ABC, Australian Broadcast Company. And she ran over and she hugged me. And I said to her, I must not be who you think I am. And she goes, <laughs> you're exactly who I think you are. I read every word you wrote in the Washington Post about me after I got home. And there was, it was never as important to me that an athlete or coach or whomever saw my work than it was that she saw it. And so we got, we had a connection over that. Um, and so that's the most exciting thing I've ever seen. It's not the Cubs in 2016, although, <laughs> you know, I mean, that's gotta be, I was in Cleveland sitting there in the stands with my brother. You know, we, we, we used to go to Wrigley Field with our paper route money. I buy an $8 box seat with my paper route money from delivering this Tribune in the Sun-Times and an usher would come and see, you know, a kid who was 12 years old sitting in a box seat and say, can I see your ticket stuff? Yeah, you can. And then a couple of times they, they got used to seeing him. They would say, why are you sitting up here? I'm like, because I can afford to, because I can. I want to sit right here. And I sat in those same sections, 420, 419 through 424. I sit in those sections now. And I sat in them every playoff game I could, 2015, 16, 17, 18. You're mentioning that. So, and you're, you're wearing a Northwestern t-shirt. So tell me, what was it like when Northwestern finally, finally made the NCAA tournament? Yeah, it was even bigger than the Rose Bowl in some ways because you had an extra 20, year, 20 years, 21 years between the two things, 22 years. 
So, I mean, if, you, if I had to rank the most important sporting events of my life, I, I, I guess the Cubs winning is one. My mother was 91 years old, and a great part of us knows that she'd held on for certain things. She held on to see my, her grandson, my nephew, graduate from St. Ignatius. She held on to have her 90th birthday. Um, she held on to see the Cubs win, like a lot of people. And, you know, she would sit on her rooftop on Lakeshore Drive um, at the, the, the high-rise building complex that she lived in, in a senior complex, Brookdale, um, just north of Belmont. She would sit there with them on the roof, and they could hear the cheers from Wrigley Field in 15 and 16. Sure you could from there, yep. You could, and a lot of people didn't make it. People that she had dinner with and people that I had dinner with in their dining room, they didn't make it. A lot of people did make it. So, but that's one. Two, I guess it's got to be the Bears in 85. And then I guess, remember, I've, you know, people who might have gone to Northwestern and said, wow, how could he put all these things before the Wildcats? Because I was a Bears fan before I went to Northwestern. I've been a Bears fan since five. Quarterback Nick Foles was intercepted twice and sacked four times. Wilbon, would you like to focus on how good the Rams looked or how bad the Bears looked? I don't know how good the, the Rams looked because they played the Bears, and the Bears had no clue. And it's an indictment of their head coach, their head coach. Let me be very specific. It's an indictment of him because he came in as an offensive genius, and he has no offense, all right? So it's an indictment of him, the structure of his offense, and his play calling. At fourth and one at one point, Tony, and I think it was still a real game, he hands off to his return man, all right? who has, his, his returner has probably never had a fourth and one in his life and blocking in the game at the same time is the guy, the draft pick, who looks like he can actually be a runner. And so he right now is failing the team in any number of ways and doesn't seem to get it. He doesn't even seem to understand that his opposite number, Coach McVay, just kicked his butt all over the field. And he's rarely accountable for what happens. He goes, wow, I've never been a part of something like this before. Well, you are now, and your offense, and you're supposed to be a genius, it stinks. I don't know that I can put a finer point on it than that. Listen, Wilbon, you bleed Chicago sports. That's, how shall I put this, painfully obvious. You left this city for D.C. 40 years ago, but you never really left since you've been seen at Wrigley Field on countless occasions. And, of course, Northwestern, where you're an alum and part of their board, and you still have a residence here. So tell me a story I don't know about this full-time affection for Chicago sports, and have you seen a doctor about this lately? Ha! <laughs> no. Ever. <laughs> and, yeah, I mean, one of the, the best things that came out of me not, not coming home ever to write for the Tribune or Sun-Times is I could root for my teams. Because you can't do that if you're covering the teams seriously, even if you're writing a column. You can admit that you were a fan of this team growing up, but you, got, you have to be hypercritical. I, I can still... I can take, I can put the hats on and off, take them on and off. But the best thing was I could go and sit in the stands and watch my teams. If I'd come back home in 97, I couldn't have done that. That's the best thing to come out of it. Well, mm -hmm. second best thing. The best thing was I stayed and I, my life turned out the way it did uh, in Washington with Tony, no less. But I did all those things. I've been a fan of those teams since I was five. I mean, the Cubs since seven or six or seven, Bears since five. Bulls since the beginning, I was seven. How old was I? I was seven when the Bulls were created. 
Yeah, um, 66, 67. Yep. Yeah. So yeah, my birthday's in November of 58. So I was seven. And, uh, or maybe, yeah, I get, maybe I, I was just turning eight. And um, so I, you know, and then Northwestern. So I've had, I've had 55 years plus of those other knucklehead teams and, and, and 40 years plus of this. I know where you're coming from. Believe me, I do. Did you know General Motors 2021 Supplier of the Year is located in Hillside, Illinois? Dynamic Manufacturing not only remanufactures transmissions for the likes of GM, but also as a state-of-the-art facility. Its capabilities include engineering new or existing products, along with manufacturing, machining, logistics, and re-energizing used batteries for electric cars and energy storage systems. I've seen their operation firsthand, and their nearly 1 million square feet of operating space is extremely impressive. Dynamic was founded by the late, great John Partipillo in 1955 and is still family-owned and operated by the next generation. For more information about Dynamic Manufacturing, visit their website at dynamicmanufacturinginc.com. Dynamic Manufacturing. Honor the legacy. Pioneer the future. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. You're listening to Tell Me a Story I Don't Know with ESPN's Michael Wilbon. Now, let me tell you a story you don't know about me and Wilbon. This is the end of March 1990, and I am sitting with Mike, Terry Bores, and another person who I cannot remember in the McNichols Arena. It's Final Four weekend. I'm doing a backdrop story for NPR, National Public Radio, I have my sound. I am writing the piece. It's going to be airing the Tuesday morning after the championship game. Only something huge happened on April 1st to kill that story. And you're looking as if you may not remember. Well, I remember sitting in McNichols for the Final Four. But I don't... 1990. What the hell happened in 90? It happened that day and became such major news that it was almost bigger than the game itself, which I believe was a blowout. It would have been the firing of Brent Musburger. Oh! Oh, my God! My story got killed, by the way. Wow. Wow. I, you know, wow. That's a wow. I would, I, I, look, Brent is someone I follow, someone who has been great to me personally and professionally. I would not have attached George a date to that. And, I, and obviously, you know, yeah, it would have overtaken it for a great many people who watched Brent and listened to Brent. Look, I read Brent. I read Brent. I read him and covered the Bears. And he wrote a column when I was a kid in the 1960s. And I would read at, I don't know, must have been, I must have been 9, 10, 11, 12 years old. I would read Brent Musburger. Yes. I mean, I wanted to, I don't, I don't know that I wanted, that I knew I wanted to be Brent, but yeah, it's interesting. People talk about crossover. Somebody called me a pioneer. I'm like, please stop. <laughs> you know, please. I mean, I grew up getting to see. I'm going to mention somebody other than Brent to you real quickly. I got, I got, to, I got to read 
listen to and then see Brent. And I had the same thing with Wendell Smith. Mm. Wendell Smith, I'm not even a pioneer as it involves black people doing this because Wendell Smith did this. He did it with the Chicago Sun-Times and on Channel 9. Yep. Might have been on Channel 2 at a point, but he was on Channel 9. So I got to see a black man do this in the, once again, 1960s. So people come up to me and they say, you're a pioneer, you did this in the 1990s. It's like, stop. We can share these stories because they're the same for me as they are for you in, yeah. in many ways. Now, yeah. you were you were born here and you spent your time on the South Side. Tell me a story I don't know about that time and what shaped who Michael Wilbon is today. Well, all of the shot. I was born on the North Side. I was born in oh, Weiss, I didn't Memorial, know that. Weiss Memorial Hospital, which is still there intact on Lakeshore Drive. I drive past it every time I go to Evanston. How about that? Or every time I come back, I drive past well, it. Well, when, when did you move to the South Side? There was no moving. I was born in... Oh, you were born there. The hospital. Always it, lived on the South Side. My it's, interesting, South. it's interesting that you say that because I was born at Mount Sinai on the South Side. Oh, wow. And we moved to the North Side when I was seven months old. This story's well, getting very interesting. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I, I always lived on this. I only lived on the South Side until I went to Northwestern. But... You said, tell you a story. So about how these things shaped me. I mean, I'm I'm all of it. I'm a son of the Midwest. I'm a product of public school, K through nine, and then Catholic school in high school, St. Ignatius. I'm a product of Jesuit education and public education. Um, I'm a product of growing up on the South side, uh, the product of a, a woman who taught, a mother who taught school for 35 years, all of it public school, a father, who, like my mother, fled the South and hated it, fled the South during the Great Migration. And so my feelings about the South are very conflicted and, 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 and complex. Um, and so I grew up in an almost perfect setting. You know, the places where I grew up and I hear now about somebody being shot nearby or on that street or a neighbor being killed, I didn't have any of that. I grew up... <laughs> I grew up sitting on a park bench with my best friends half the nights, you know, until 11 o'clock or later until a parent came and got us. And we never had a fear of anything, nothing. I'm a product of, of all of that. I'm a product of a, a little league that was sponsored by Ernie Banks. Wow. The jerseys on the back of some of the uniforms, not mine. Certainly the team that was the Cubs and wore the blue, they had Ernie Banks Ford on the back of their jerseys. And so people say, how can you be a fan of the Cubs? You're on the South side. What? I played Little League because of Ernie Banks. I don't know that we have a Little League without his sponsoring that Little League. Every jersey didn't have Ernie Banks Ford in the back, but the Little League was co-sponsored by Ernie, which, which, which he knew. And he knew because I would say to him as an adult, I don't think I could have played Little League without you. And he would say, yeah, I don't believe that. If the angels would have come down, you would have played Little League. Let's let's go have a ginger ale. You know, it's funny that you say that because I have been trying to convince people for years. Yeah, I tried to do it when I would do talk shows on uh, on the score radio, especially baseball shows, that I was a fan of both teams. Well, you'd get people always arguing on both sides. You can't be a fan of both teams. And I said, well, I am a fan of both teams. And the reason I'm a fan of both teams is because I grew up with Jack Brickhouse. And Jack Brickhouse, of course, noteworthy for doing the Cubs, also did the White Sox games back in the 60s. And so 
as a kid, you get to watch a night game that involved the Yankees and Maris and Mantle and Tresh and Elston Howard and Bobby Richardson and Whitey Ford. And then you'd hear Brickhouse doing the Cubs games. And so I've always been a fan of both teams. Listen, I never rooted against the White Sox. As a matter of fact, because my father is rolling in his grave every time I cheer for the Cubs, my father was a White Sox fan. I came home one day and a guy is sitting on the front steps of my house talking to my father with with a peg leg. You want to guess who that was? Oh, yeah, it's Mr. Vec. Bill Vec. <laughs> I, don't even know, I don't even know why... I don't, I don't know how that conversation took place or why it took place. I, I, don't, I don't know. I was too young. But I don't – I cheer for the White Sox. I'm happy that the White Sox are good. And Bill Melton, I have, I have home movies of Bill Melton and Walt Williams who lived two blocks away from me. No I grew up at 82nd and Wentworth. They lived at 82nd and Perry. They came to my Little League game. Bill Melton. They were at the Little League parade on the opening day for us. Bill Melton and Walt Nonek Williams. I think Bill lived with Walt Nonek Williams then. And, you know, when I was going to root against them, I'm going to root against Major League Baseball players, one who would become the home run champion during that time, right. Bill Melton. No, so I didn't get, you know, I don't let adults tell me what I should do. I don't particularly let New Yorkers because they're divided by bridges. I don't let them I don't give a shit what they think about who I for <laughs> how they're not the, they're the Mets and the Yankees and the Giants. I don't give a damn about the Mets and the Yankees and the Giants and the Dodgers. My world's not framed by New York crap. So, I, I yeah, I'm like you, George. I grew up rooting for both teams. And I, the Cubs became a more of a way of life for me. I think in Evanston, once I went to college and I could take the train, I wasn't going to come all the way back to the south side, but I could get the train to Wrigley and watch the Cubs and Dave Baseball did it and being on GN did it and the White Sox got off GN and that killed it to some degree for in terms of a national following. That's what enables when you talk to people from places like San Antonio and Sacramento and they say, I'm a Cub fan. You know why they're a Cub fan? Because they were on GN. Once GN got to be a super station on cable. And so that, that you know, Eddie Reinsdorf and, I mean, Eddie Einhorn and, um, and Reinsdorf, Mr. Reinsdorf, they were just ahead of their time a little bit. They were. They, they, they were just ahead of their time um, in terms of people, the distribution of, of baseball telecasts. But anyway, um, I, I, I'm a product of all that. And um, I see it all the time. My son, thank God my son was willing to be a product of it. He's 12. Um, he picks game. He'll, he would wake up at five and six years old on a Saturday and say, Dad, can we go to Cubs Cardinals? And I would say, Matthew, you realize Cubs Cardinals is in Chicago. <laughs> and we got on a plane and went to Chicago so much. He said, okay, well, why can't we go? And I would say, you know what? There's no reason we can't go. Let's go. There you go. And so we did it. And, then, and now, you know, he's a full-fledged, he has to explain to people in greater Washington, D.C., why, when they say you have Jersey Day, why he's got on Javi Baez, you know, why he has on Devin Hester or Brian Urlacher, you know, or, or, you know, Robinson now, why, you know, he has on, oh my God, when the Capitals won two years ago, why does he have Patrick Kane on, on Jersey day and not <laughs> Alexander Ovechkin who gave me a Jersey, signed it and said, this is for your son. 
he can stop wearing that Patrick Kane jersey, but he's not yeah. going to stop wearing the Patrick Kane jersey. So, yeah, it, it's, it's ingrained in me. I will die with it. I don't know how long. Maybe he'll be moved off that mark. We'll see how it goes. I conclude all of these interviews, Michael, with this question. What would you have been had it not been for journalism? I don't know. I knew early. I'm not one of those people who got into it by accident. I'm not a person who got into it late. I didn't come to it by happenstance. I didn't come to it because, you know, I, I knew um, when I was, I knew for sure when I was 14 or 15. Before that, I used to go to Chicago Public Library. So on Saturdays, my brother and I had music lessons, playing keyboards, organ. And I would go to Lion and Healy on Adams and Wabash. And I would, we would take our music lessons for a half, for an hour. And that would go from like 11 to 12 or 12 to one. And then I would get back home at about six or seven o'clock and my parents would say, where you been? Where have you been? You're 12 years old. <laughs> and I would say I was at Chicago Public Library, which I was. And I would look at the microfilm. I would take, for people who don't know what that is, which is everybody younger than us, I would take the, the, the film and put it on the spool. And I would, I would just, not research, I would just read a season of something. So I would read like the 1927 season of the New York Yankees. I would read the New York Times or whatever. I would pick, so I don't even know how I would pick the newspaper. But I would read all the events leading up to um, a Schmeling Lewis. I would do that when I was 12 and 13 and 11. Um, and I knew I was drawn to this. And my math and science scores could not have been lower. They're the lowest of anyone who's ever taken the SAT. <laughs> but I knew, I knew I could control, I could master the language. And so I would marry my two interests, the language and sports. And so for me, I don't, like, I don't know what I would, I don't know. I don't have any idea. I've, I've had one, I, I had, the only job I've ever had in my life are the paper route, and that's the newspaper, delivering the Tribune and Sun-Times for seven years, six years. So I did that as a kid. I worked in my uncle's grocery store on 83rd and Ellis. And then I got a job at the Washington Post. That's it. I didn't wait tables. I didn't do, I had an internship at University Relations at Northwestern. And what I learned is, and please forgive me all the PR professionals who I'm close to over my life. And there are a great many. I knew I didn't want to do PR. I did it for a semester. I was like, I'm done. That's it. And I did that, to, you know, because that was work study. That was whatever. But I knew way early on by my sophomore year in high school, what I wanted to do. And so I took a journalism class at St. Ignatius. Thank you, Jim Wall, the teacher, James Wall. Um, I took English. My, 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 my elective classes were in English. Maybe they were composition writing. Maybe they were short essay. Writing. I knew. And I, I didn't do it as a well, let me plot it out this way. I did it because that was my passion. The language and sports. So if I wasn't writing about sports all those years, 30 years at the Washington Post, then I would have been covering politics or writing about fashion or music. I don't know, something. I could have written about a lot of other things in sports. But that's what it became. That's what it remained. And I don't have any regrets. And I don't, I don't wonder one day. Again, my big decision in my life was whether to say yes to the Tribune or not. And um, the people I had conversations, now that I'm telling you this, I remember, I remember Michael Jeffrey Jordan calling me, saying, so it's out there. 
you're going to leave the Washington Post to come home to the Tribune? I'm like, how do you even know this? And he said, not only do I know it, I want you to tell me what you're going to do. And I remember I talked to Michael about that not too long ago. During the last dance, I talked to him about that conversation we had, which he had influence over my decision. I'm not going to get into what that influence was. But that remains off the records forever. Mm-hmm. But um, I, I, that was the, that's the hardest decision of my life, was to come home or not. And I, every day, George, every time I walk down Michigan Avenue, I wonder what my life would have been like if I come home every day. And I have no, I don't have an answer. I don't know. In wrapping this up, I really honestly wish I could turn back the clock some, say, 60 years so that I could sit on a park bench with you and just talk sports all day long. Thank you, Michael Wilbon, for telling me a story I don't know. Thank you for having me. Uh, It's cathartic. It's like being on a psychiatrist's sofa for an hour. I don't know if I should send you a a check or just send me a bill. I'll I'll send you the bill. (laughs) Send me the bill, but thanks, man. I appreciate it. My thanks to ESPN and pardon the interruption for those wonderful highlights. And as always, my thanks to TJ Reeves for developing this Encore Week. Will Hatzel for some nifty editing and Nick Tochi for our graphics. And to our wonderful sponsors, Dynamic Manufacturing. Find them at dynamicmanufacturinginc.com. And by Vienna Beef, home of the Chicago hot dog. They're at viennabeef.com. Tune in next week when we present another fascinating guest on Tell Me a Story I Don't Know. I'm George Hoffman, and that's all she wrote. Why pay more for a separate CoQ10 supplement? Enjoy twice the benefits with Superbeats Heart Chews Advanced from the number one doctor, pharmacist, and cardiologist recommended beat brand for heart health support. The new Superbeats Heart Chews Advanced by Human is now infused with CoQ10. That's essentially like getting CoQ10 for free. Our powerful blend of beetroot, grapeseed extract, and CoQ10 ingredients support nitric oxide production healthy blood pressure, healthy CoQ10 levels, and heart-healthy energy with two tasty chews a day. Plus, Superbeats Heart Chews Advance are plant-based, so you get heart-healthy energy without stimulants. For a limited time, get a free 30-day supply of Superbeats Heart Chews on all bundles and 15% off your first order by going to RadioBeats.com and using promo code DEAL. That's RadioBeats.com, code DEAL. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.